Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Austria was showered with swastikas. It was the 12th of March, 1938, and Hitler had finally emerged from his self-imposed inactivity. He crossed the border near his birthplace at Braunau. From the balcony of the Imperial Palace, he announced, Als Führer und Kanzler der deutschen Nationen des Reichs melde ich vor der deutschen Geschichte nunmehr den Eintritt meiner Heimat in das deutsche Reich. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller. Opposite me is Jonathan Wilson. And today on the pod, we have Kat Peterson, archivist, researcher and Blizzard copy editor. Kat, a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Now, you've picked a, a right old historical one today. We go back to 1938, Austria 2, Germany 0. Why have you chosen this game, Kat? Before I start talking about that, can I take you back to the absolute basics, yes. which is who's actually playing in this game? You can. So the game takes place on the 3rd of April 1938, as you may or may not know. On the 12th of March, the Nazis invaded Austria mm -hmm. as part of their policy to extend Germany. Uh, the law was signed on the 13th of March, so strictly speaking, Austria by that point is already a part of Greater Germany. So when you say Austria playing Germany, mm. they're kind of the same country at this point. Okay. So the people who are actually playing, even at the time, the newspapers found it quite difficult mm -hmm. to give them a name. So they're being referred to as the Viennese national team mm -hmm. because football in Austria was very 
centred on Vienna at the time. Teams from the regions weren't actually part of the league in any sense. So the Viennese teams were all playing each other. Mm-hmm. And they were referred to as Gau Österreich. Ostmark, I think by that point, wasn't used for the team. In the stadium, the teams were referred to as the German national team and the German Austrian team. So they're already <laughs> right, sort okay. of really pushing this greater Germany yeah. myth. Uh-huh. It's quite similar when uh, on the football ramble during Euro 2016, when England went out, you know, Wales became England West <laughs> yeah. as they've progressed through the tournament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. as we very respectably, <laughs> respectably called them. Um, so, so what, what what about this game? Is it captures your imagination then, Kat? Uh, so I mostly came across this game when I was researching a player called Matthias Sendelar last ah. summer. Mm-hmm. So he's a key figure in Austria at the time, probably the best striker in the world. He's been referred to in the 1930s. And both he and this game have been used first by the Nazis and then by sort of the opposite faction as myth-making Phenomena. Phenomena. Thank you. I was going to use the word propaganda, but yeah, phenomena is perhaps um, better. And so it's really interesting, A, that this game was played at all because the Nazis were not into football. Mm. I will say that. Like, they did not care. It was too dubious. It was a kind of alternative way for people to get attached to things. It was very regional in Germany at the time. Well, I think as well, yeah, and and, we've talked with David Bolkov about this, that the, the Jewish influence over football in Central Europe in the 20s and 30s was, was enormous. Mm. So presumably that also made it made it suspect. Yeah, and especially Viennese football, which is then really contrasted with the German football, which is much more physical, much more dependent on strength, um, playing a WM system, as opposed to the Austrians who are playing pyramid, very technical, fast, sort of almost tricksy, which obviously doesn't play well at all with the sort of Nazi ideology of mm. people being physical and strong and they don't want to see that kind of metropolitan mm-hmm. Well there was also fanciness. a suspicion of uh, There was no two banks of four was there Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> well there was also a suspicion of professional sport generally in, in, in Nazi Germany right? That, yeah. That sport was seen as something that should be pure should be you know it shouldn't be something you derive money from Yeah so in Nazi Germany at the time football was still amateur in Austria, it was already professional, and the Nazis then took it back to amateurism. So Austria was the first professional league outside of the UK. Uh, so 1924, Austrian or Viennese football goes professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're the first country to do that. Uh, Hungary follow in 1926, Argentina in 1931. I think they're the first three outside of the UK. Good quiz, good quiz question, that, isn't it? Well, only for me. To yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and, and you know, as Kat says, the, one of the things Nazis did after the Anschluss was to re amateurize football, which, which actually has significant consequences for, for Sindler. Yeah, we, when we've spoken about the 1936 games, obviously held in Berlin on this podcast, when we talked about Peru beating Austria. No, Austria beating Peru 4 2. No, Peru beating Austria. Oh, no, it was Peru. Sorry, I forget now. Yeah. But, but Austria went through, which is why it's confusing. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting caught up myself in the, yeah. in the propaganda. Um, how much of that do you think played a part? Because obviously the, the German national team didn't do very well. I think Norway put them out of my. Memory serves me yeah, well. That's right. the, the only game Hitler ever went to, famously. Indeed. Um, so, so obviously that was amateur. Uh, it applies largely in, in the Olympics. Well, completely amateur. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. properly amateur in those days. It wasn't like the you know, post. You know, it wasn't like communist times when you had yeah. What were de facto professional athletes? Mm-hmm. You know, who, who technically their their income came from being in the army, being in the police, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm. But did they see the way the the football? played out in that that Olympic Games. You know, you saw well, in the previous podcast, we spoke about the Austrian and Peru and what happened there. Two years later, 
you have this game in 1938. Why do you think that they needed to play this game whilst, you know, Austria had just been annexed, all this kind of stuff's going on? Was it just purely symbolic or was it for people to try and rally behind? Yeah, I think a lot of it was, it was a very easy way for them to sort of give a feel-good atmosphere to Mm -hmm. boost morale. Um, Of course, you have the implication that actually if you call it the reconciliation game, which is what it was often referred to, that there is actually something they need to sort of make up <laughs> Reconcile, for. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, there's yeah. also presumably the fact that you have a World Cup coming up two months later where Germany will be competing with Austria and with mm. Austrian players. So <clears throat> I, I guess there is a need symbolically to, to bring the two together, to acknowledge that this is not necessarily the, the most straightforward union. Mm. And at the time, Austria were a superb team of course you know and yeah i mean probably past their peak by by this stage but yeah definitely through i, I mean i guess 32 33ish is probably their absolute peak but yeah through the 30s they've been you know one of the great forces of european football mm. and and matthias sindela um the, the the great austrian player was at the center of, of all this as you've mentioned him already cat yeah, can I take you back to something for a second? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so actually what also happens in this game is that Herberger can see for the first time. So, so, Herberger, so, uh, the, yeah, sorry, go on. The coach of the German national team and he can see Germany and Austria play against each other. So for the World Cup that happens in June of the same year, he can then choose Austrian players to integrate into this greater German team. So we end up with a team, a squad of 22 players of whom nine Austrian and they do appallingly badly, so this clearly didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think actually help. If it's, if it's the um, a line that I, I I hadn't seen until I was doing the research for this from um, von Schammer and Austin, the the uh, was it Sportsführer was that his? So the, the Nazi head of sport, <laughs> yeah. basically. Sportsführer is. Uh, yeah. um, and so he yeah he he's somebody who kind of crops up in in various guises. Uh, I mean, he he authorized, for instance, uh, Alfred Schoffer the the great Hungarian to go and coach in Germany you know he, he made sure he he got his license which wasn't you know a, a given but he, um, he was obviously a recognition of how good Austrian football was and if Germany were to do anything in that World Cup they had to accept those players into the squad and you know he he, he says Viennese football but Viennese football art and Viennese football and the Viennese football school are unique in the world and we would be fools to destroy it which is a, a fascinating recognition given yeah. it it's to a large extent, a Jewish kind of construct. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, it's not 100% a Jewish construct, but Austrian football, Viennese football, as we understand it, mm-hmm. a lot of it comes from Hakorak, which was a, a you know, militantly Zionist team. Uh, you know, you had to be not just Jewish, but, you know, a real sort of practicing, yeah. believing Jew to, to, to play for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they raise money for, for, for Zionism. But also, uh, Ugo Meisel, the, you know, he... Sort of, he had set up the Austrian FA. He was the head of the Austrian FA. He ran Vienna Amateur, which becomes Austria Vienna. Uh, it, it was him who signed Sindelar mm-hmm. initially, and then seemed to go off him for reasons that aren't entirely clear. Uh, he signed the Conrad brothers, who were Jewish from from Budapest. Yeah, he was the man who sort of created Austrian football. And there's the leading Nazi sort of acknowledging, yeah, we can't really do much at this World Cup without this sort of this 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 structure that is Jewish in origin. Well, it's a rare sort of moment of, of clarity I suppose from such a man like that Yeah, He did but, say it in response to a lot of foreign press saying that Viennese football had died so I think in a way he is sort of mm-hmm. it's reactive rather yeah. than him actually appreciating it. So no I but I mean yeah, yes you're right but at the same time the I think the, the, the fact this game takes place, the fact that it's called reconciliation, the fact that It's it, not called that by them 
Well, I think it's not later. Is it not called? Oh, so that that Versöhnungsspiel uh, is a is a later. Yeah, not coinage, not much it? later, but a little bit. Okay, later. Fine. I think they just called it. But like, but whatever they call game. it, it's, yeah. it still appears to be sort of a uh, an acknowledgement that these two separate things need to be fused before the World Cup, and so that is acknowledging the power and strength of BNE slash Austrian football. Mm. I mean, what? Yeah. Why do you think the World Cup was so important then? I mean, have they sort of looked at 1934, Mussolini, all that kind of stuff? Well, it's the World Cup. I mean, even though it's only the third World Cup, it's mm-hmm. still the World Cup. You still want to do well and you still want to win it. Mm-hmm. And particularly given given the Olympics in 36 had yeah. been, you know, an entirely a, a PR propaganda project, why would the why would the World Cup be any different? And and yeah, as you say, they'd they'd seen the success of Italy in Italy in 34. And the way that uh, Pozzo and his national team, I mean, I think there's a lot of debate as to quite how much of a believer in fascism Pozzo was, but certainly that team was sort of freighted with mm-hmm. with, with fascist uh, symbolism and, 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 and became a propaganda tool. Mm-hmm. It was clearly going to be the same in 38 and, and Italy do win it again in 38. So, yeah, you can see why uh, people whose job was to promote Germany and promote the ideology that was running Germany would want them to do well in in that World Cup, just as it you know, just as sport is a a tool for has been a tool for states for a hundred years and and perhaps more. Absolutely, yeah. And at the, and at the time, Austria, yeah, by nineteen thirty eight, that that the, the Wunder team as they're dubbed sort of passed their peak. But you know, in the early thirties, of Jonathan Jonathan Sedcat, you know, nineteen thirty four World Cup reached the semi final, and they were a phenomenal side with with Sindelar, you know, the most talked about player that they had. Yeah, and one of the um, myths around this game as well is that the Austrians were told not to win. So it was mm. actually meant to be this, allegedly meant to be this propaganda coup for Germans mm-hmm. that they could say, great, Austria can do all these fancy things, but actually, mm-hmm. you know, we are the stronger power and we've sort of subsumed this now. Yeah. So you're saying that's a myth, that the Austrians weren't told to kind of go easy? Because a lot of stuff you read about this, it's suggested that, come on lads, that you shouldn't even score, let alone win the game. Yeah, so there is there are a lot of myths about this, which is yeah. also quite interesting. I think the fact that these myths exist. So the main myths, as far as I can tell, well, are no should, basis should we in fact. should we come back to that? Should we talk about Sindelar and why he was so important? That's, yeah, Sindelar's key to the myths, right? So let's 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 tease that for later. <laughs> so I mean, uh, I want to get to the myths. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Wunder team, its its birth is really when they beat they put five past Scotland, and that is when Sindelar comes into the team. And so, uh, a I mean, good Scotland side. You S- know, people might think, oh, so what? Well, but- I mean, a good Scotland side, except they had no Celtic or Rangers players, and they did get an injury very early, so effectively playing with ten for most of the game. Okay. So there are, as ever with Scottish football, there are excuses. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, you know, I mean, the, the reaction of the Austrian papers to it is extraordinary. They sort of talk about, on the one hand, the, the excitement of seeing their team playing this beautiful football, mm. and on the other hand, the sadness of seeing this. This great power humbled. Yeah, but I mean, Sindelar. I guess we should we should explain his background, who he is. So he, yeah. he's a he's a, a Moravian Czech. His, you know, his family is Moravian. Uh, they've moved to Vienna, and I mean, you've you've been to Favoriten, which is a suburb where where he grew up. So do you want to do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So now a suburb at the time, now an area of relatively central. Vienna, which was one of the sort of peripheral industrial suburbs at the time that starts springing up in Vienna at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. Um, Favoriten, especially the Czech population there, based around brickmaking, which is what Sindelar's father did as well. So still clearly quite an immigrant community. 
And there, what you find a lot is that um, a lot of Viennese footballers at the time come from this particular area of Vienna and a neighbouring one with a similar kind of structure. So almost a third of all players in the Viennese league at one mm. point in the 1920s come from these two areas. Uh, very much kind of children finding green spaces or greenish spaces for themselves to play in, developing their own style of play. Um, essentially, it's certainly been argued because they're not playing with real balls, they're playing with sort of rag balls that they have to develop more technique, mm -hmm. that a lot of them are undernourished, which is certainly true for Cinderella. So he, he's this very thin figure. Is that why he got the nickname the Paper Man? Yeah, partly that, is sort mm -hmm. of dancing around the yeah. pitch. Um, originally mm -hmm. actually quite a negative nickname, yeah. just because he didn't seem substantial enough, mm -hmm. but literally because he grew up with not enough to eat, so mm -hmm. you didn't have to make up for those facts. But yeah, they were real that... street footballers. You know, yeah, we hear absolutely. about We hear this about um, young working class, you know, in the, the neighbourhoods of, say, Buenos Aires or in South America more. They, they, they didn't have, well, I, maybe not so much nowadays, but certainly... But, uh, yeah, I, I think that comparison is is, is absolutely correct. I think mm. what you see in Budapest, you see in Vienna, you see in, in Buenos Aires, mm. they're there's cities that are, uh, or countries where a city is is growing rapidly. There's suddenly rapid urbanisation, people mm. coming from outside, coming from the countryside, or in this case from from other countries mm -hmm. to the to the capital. Um, yeah, okay. Other areas of the same empire. Yeah, cool, cool. correct. Um, yeah. Researcher and archivist, Jonathan. We're dealing with a professional here. Um, and they, yeah, the the. The, the sort of the vacant lots where they, they, they seem to, to help develop technique. Kids in poverty, desperate to kind of, you know, I mean, Pushkas famously, yeah. the reason he played football constantly was if his team won, they got given a salami and he wanted the food. But then at the same time, you've got that going on, the, the grunts, as they call them in in, in Budapest, uh, the potreros in, in Buenos Aires, uh, which is sort of mythologized. And then you have over the top of that, you have an intellectual culture, which somehow sort of, yeah, the, the, there's a fusion of the two, so you get this sort of self-developed technique and this ability to, to look after yourself on the pitch, which you wouldn't necessarily get in the British game, where people are playing on on huge grassy pitches, where running becomes the, the, the key thing. And this intellectual culture of the coffee houses, which you know that, that culture exists, Budapest, Vienna, Buenos Aires, they all have that, where intellectuals begin to take on the game and, and begin to analyse it and begin to work out a sort of tactical framework for it. And those two things together. Mm -hmm seem very potent. But in Cinderella's case in particular, in Vienna in general, you get a literal connection of the two because what happens a lot is that middle class, sort of socially engaged people will come into these areas and try and impose structure onto these street children. Or not, they're not street children per se, but children playing yeah. on the street outside. And one of the ways in which they do that is by establishing football clubs. And that's actually how Cinderella is spotted so he's in this organisation run by... Well, the, the team um, that he played for was FK Austria. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's been an amateur, becomes yeah. Austria-Vienna. Yeah. Uh, and and, and uh, middle-class Jewish side, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, they, they were sort of... Less Jewish. Yeah, they were okay. assimilated Jewish, they're sort yeah. of soft, soft Jewish. And they're the equivalent of them to Karl in Budapest. Right, okay. So you had the, the sort of the... I mean... Terminology is very difficult here. You had the the explicitly mm -hmm. Zionist side, Hakoach, and then you had the the sort of the middle class bourgeois mm -hmm. assimilated Jews in at at Vienna Amatura. But you know, it would not by any in any 
since be a hundred percent Jewish team. I mean, MTK, I think, was only ever about 40% Jewish. Well, I, I'm not sure what the figure is here, but I, I, my guess is it'd be roughly similar. So when the Conrad brothers move mm-hmm. and they, they played for MTK, the reason they go to Wiener Amateur, it's partly because Ugo Meisel, who's this sort of great sort of, you know, just runs everything in Austrian football, mm-hmm. partly because he spotted them, but partly because it just felt very very much the same, very much, they're, they're very much at home there. Yeah, so Cinderella's playing on the streets in, in this neighbourhood, but he's... Um, he moves into to football you know, on a more professional base. I mean, he wasn't Jewish himself, as, no. as far as I'm aware, so hence what you're saying. But becomes this superstar of, of Austrian football and, relatively speaking, I suppose, of world football. Yeah, absolutely. And like Jonathan said, one of the ways in which that is picked up because of this slightly weird environment in mm. Vienna is that he becomes this hero of the coffee houses. So suddenly <laughs> yeah. people are writing poems about him, <laughs> which right. doesn't happen... Well, Generally, I, I think there's, you know, there's that, um, the, the Alfred Polgar, who was a, a theatre critic, who wrote his obituary in a newspaper in, in Paris, I, th- I think. I think it was a Parisian paper. But it, plausibly exiled well, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think many people will argue who are listening. But the, <laughs> uh, the way he describes him, I, I think you see why the coffee houses adopted him. So he's a, he would play football as a grandmaster plays chess with a broad mental conception, calculating moves and counter moves in advance, always choosing the most promising of all possibilities. In a way, he had brains in his legs, and many remarkable and unexpected things occurred to them while they were running. Sindler's shot hit the back of a net like the perfect punchline, the ending that made it possible to understand and appreciate the perfect composition of a story, the crowning of which it represented. So if the coffee houses are places where intellectuals, playwrights, journalists play chess... Yeah. And he's describing him as a chess player yeah. and as sort of this comedian or writing a comic short mm-hmm. story. Yeah, this is this is sort of projection from the coffee houses of if we were footballers, this is what we yeah, would yeah, be. Yeah. That's why they love him. And and you know, Di Papierena, the the paper man, the fact that he he has no physical presence, it is an, an intellectual form of the game hmm. that, of course, makes him hugely appealing as well. I mean, how how important though when Austria went to play England at Stamford Bridge, they they lost the game four three. But Sindelar was there and, and wowed well, the English I mean, I th- press, th- did he not? Sindelar was, you know, he, he, he gets dropped by, you know, he's sort of on the fringes of the Austria side uh, through the late 20s. And Meisel, you know, who was his director at club level, uh, is, is the manager of a national team. And he seems to fall out with Sindelar. So he had two centre forwards to choose from. He had Sindelar and he had um, Uradil. Now, Uradil was a classic British style number nine, big physical player. And I think there's, there's a reasonable evidence to suggest that Meisel... Because he was such an Anglophile, he believed that was how football should be played. So he was slightly suspicious of this new style of mm-hmm. almost a false nine. But then there was a game when when they lost, Austria lost 5-0 to, to South Germany, I think. Um, and in January, yeah, January 929. And Sindelar said afterwards that, that Austria had lacked Scheibelt, which would mean... Have you got the pronunciation correct? Scheibelt. Scheibelt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't do Austrian pronunciations because they're terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, actually, so it's a verb. So they didn't scheibelt enough, oh, is okay. what he said, right. which is is that kind of circle Viennese. Oh, so the, the, the swirl, the Danubian yeah. whirl, which they became famous yeah. for, which he was sort of. So what was that, sorry? Well, so <laughs> you see, the similar thing happens at Schalke actually a little bit later. And um, the, the base, it's just the false nine. I mean, oh, you okay. can conceptualise in, you know, with modern terminology mm-hmm. that the centre forward would drop off and that creates a space mm-hmm. and that space then allows others to move into it. So you get 
Yeah, there's interchange of positions between the front five. An element of total football. To an extent. I mean, I, total football is a really misused term, so I'd rather not say that. OK. Um, you haven't watched Fulham this season. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I have. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, total football is a was in its original incarnation it was very much um mm-hmm. players moving in vertical lines so the full back would move the right right back would move to right midfield or yeah. move to right wing they wouldn't move laterally right. whereas this is the front five interchanging mm-hmm. so it's different in in that regard the idea of interchange positions i guess is similar mm-hmm. but there's no pressing behind it or anything so <laughs> to call it total football i think is is unhelpful yeah um so yeah i yeah so uh he's saying that they should have there should have been more movement but of course if you've got a manager who believes in a big strong English style number nine then you're not going to get that that world so I, I that seems to be why he was dropped and then there's, there's kind of, I mean I guess this is again where the myths begin but there was definitely a caucus of the coffeehouse writers who were pressing for him to be in the team and there's a story that they literally cornered Meisel in a coffee shop <laughs> and bullied him into yeah. <laughs> into picking which I suspect is not true I've seen no evidence that it's actually true. It's one of those things that appears suddenly as a perfectly formed story and nobody can quite actually put their finger on when it where it happens. So Yeah, a bit of uh, a bit of um, creative license there perhaps. All right, let's have a quick break and then after that we'll go into some of the myths a bit more. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to Greatest Games on Football Ramble Daily in association with the Blizzard, everybody. Right then. So, 1938, so Sindelar, the Vundab team, we've talked a bit about them. It comes to this match and they are 
asked slash forced to play this German side after Austria has been annexed by um, the Germans, of course. Yes. So there are four main myths that are really associated with this, all of which are probably not true. But I think the fact that they exist says a lot about what this game not necessarily meant so much to people at the time, but in retrospect, what people have attached to it. So the first myth, which is relatively quickly cleared up, is that um, Sindelar particularly arranged for Austria to play in their red, white and red strip, which are obviously the Austrian national colours. The Nazis were very against using those colours because that would obviously give Austrians something to identify with. And they're really trying to eradicate this kind of, you know, that's no longer a country. Mm -hmm. You can't really have that anymore. Um, instead of their traditional white and black. There's no way of saying that Sindler had anything to do with the kit at all, mm-hmm. for a start. And Austria had actually previously played in red and white. So, for example, you mentioned the game against England at Stamford Bridge earlier. That's where they played in red and white. So, this so is yeah, not, it is worth mentioning that game. New that, that, uh, England won 4-3, but mm-hmm. Austria played brilliantly. Yeah. And the British press are sort of, yeah, they... they they lack a bit of punch in front of goal, but they are brilliant. Mm-hmm. So that that was a game which sort of even the English who kind of thought all fans were useless at football <laughs> accepted that they actually really good. And eventually, Austria do beat them uh, in in Vienna in thirty six, I think. Mm. Um, but well, later on, they beat yeah. England when it was a, a, very, very in fashion to do so, yeah. didn't it? <laughs> so the. Um, Actually, what I would say that about that as well is that it was very symbolic for Germany to play in black and white because that's their home kit. So they're actually playing, they're not playing an away match. Mm. So Austria are using their away strip and Germany are playing at home, so okay. to speak. So Vienna is also part of Austria now. Um, and then the big myth really is that Austria were banned from scoring goals <laughs> or that... <they laughs> that's a very popular that, myth, that, that um, Also that it was requested the result be a draw. So you could actually then have mm. the propaganda sort of go yeah. whichever way suited you. So everybody was kept happy. Yeah, it's not, it's not the 1982 World Cup, is it? <laughs> Come on. So what we actually see in the game itself is that Austria do miss a lot of chances in the first half to the point where a player, Binder in particular, sort of being encouraged by the crowd to wake up and stop. So that's where that myth comes chances. from, probably. Yeah, although I think... If you're looking for that, then you obviously will interpret every single missed chance <laughs> as something that was deliberately done. Mm. And I mean, there's no footage of the entire game, so I don't know if they've missed 37 chances. Yeah, or maybe sure. they missed four. It's maybe a very bobbly pitch, you'd imagine so back then. Well, and also, I suspect a lot of the people who are coming up with these myths never saw the game. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them will already be in exile and it becomes useful to them to, right, to say yeah. this. So, you, I mean, you see fans now, they take one line of a match report Oh, you see, this is what this means. People can spin anything out of anything. So yeah. anyway, sorry. So yeah, then the, um, to go with that is then the theory that Sindelar deliberately missed his chances. And then in the second half that he, to sort of, you know, thumb his nose at the Germans by saying, mm. oh, no, actually, if I want to score, I can. Right. <laughs> so then suddenly they turn it up, which I don't So the, the way the goals are scored, one of them is a sort of slightly odd... Um, it was, it was in the last scores, the first one, and after about 65 minutes. Yeah, after 62 minutes, um, Binder hits the post. Mm-hmm. I think it was. Über Wagner und Moch hat Binder den Ball bekommen. Kanoniert an der Stange. Stroke überlässt den Ball Sindler, der aus der Luft für Jakob unhaltbar 
in snatch schist. Yeah, exactly. That happened. Yeah, so um, <laughs> Binder hits the post, the ball comes back, uh, Stroh leaves it to Sindelar, who mm. then scores. So that's not, from the description, it doesn't sound like it's a kind of technically, particularly proficient, amazing goal. Yeah, he, d- he didn't have to score it. If you're going on that myth, he could have quite easily put that yeah. one wide or, or not got on the end of it at all. Yeah, and the second one actually sounds much more impressive. And Sester, who's the other Czech in the team, um, scores basically a free kick from 50 yards out, basically on the centre line. That sounds amazing. And the goalkeeper is way too far out, scrambles back, can't get to it. Yeah. I mean, he's meant that then, is it? As it you know, you, and you don't have to score that. No, from, exactly. From 50 yards so, out, I mean, you know, so it, it, yeah. It'd be easier not to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Much easier. Take it from me. But yeah, um, so I think the myth that they're not trying to score or anything sounds um, a bit. Yeah. Also, in Herberger's memoirs, there's no indication that that happen so they apparently the one request was that the game be played fairly and it was actually very low in fouls so that was quite nice people were applauding the sort of fair play of both sides Mm. but there was no particular um request for a result and it certainly didn't go whichever way Mm -hmm. the propaganda wanted if it if that was the case um and then the the last one, which is related to the goals, is that the gold celebrations were variously interpreted as either being in support of the Nazis. So you have all the functionaries kind of, you know, on a balcony looking down or that they were mocking them, you know, quite so defiant. whichever way. So that Cinderella runs into the centre circle and celebrates. And then obviously that can be variously Mm-hmm. interpreted as oh he's dancing around right in front of them saying ha ha look what I can do or that he's saying I'm part of this and I would like to pay my respects to mm. these new overlords that we now have yeah. so you know again yes he celebrates in the centre circle but how you want to interpret that really says more about you than it says about him probably. yes indeed yeah, yeah. so and then so, you know three weeks after this game or just yeah. just just under three weeks after this game the Nazi authorities say right no more professional football mm. which is not because of this game in fact I'm sure this game is part of part of a you know a long process of how do we end the professional league mm. and so all contracts are to be cancelled from June the 30th what that then means is that all these players have to suddenly find jobs even predating that um the Austrian Football Federation has already been dissolved on the 28th of March, so a few days before this game takes place. So actually, even though this is in theory an international game, it doesn't show up in any of the stats because Austria were no longer a member of FIFA at this point. Hmm. So the dis- the kind of return of football to a much more amateur structure is already happening. And, right. and what Sindelar does, I mean, Sindelar's 35 by this point, hmm. uh, so he's coming to the end of his career anyway. And you have to remember as well, 35 in those days was old. Yeah. Like really old. Very few players got past thirty. Well, especially the treatment he got on the pitch sometimes. And yeah, I mean, it's more that he's malnourished and he smokes really heavily. He drinks really heavily. I mean, if you, see, well. if you see photographs of him when he was thirty-five, yeah, he doesn't look well. He yeah, lived, he, lived, he, he he looks <laughs> fifty-ish. Lived at the bottom of a hill. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Sindler finds himself, yeah, you know, with, without his footballing contract, he has to yeah find a business. He decides to buy a, buy one of these cafes. Mm. That, that Jews are being forced to sell. Yeah, so he takes over this cafe that's already owned or temporarily owned by an Aryan Austrian. So because the previous Jewish owner had to give it up, um, but it was run as a cafe for Jews, which was then also wound up. So Sindelar takes this over in August 1938 and reopens it as Cafe Sindelar. So again, 
really Using playing name, yeah. playing on his name. Um, taking over cafes was quite popular by retired footballers because it was seen as something you could do without having too much knowledge or anything. You know, it would sort of run itself. I think especially if you attach mm. a famous name to it. Well, he, he liked to uh, have his name attached to various things. He advertised <laughs> all sorts of things from sort of milk to watches was... Uh, Something I was reading about. Yeah, a lot of advertising. He yeah. was in films, so he was really he, plastered all over Vienna. He cashed in, but fair enough. You know, one of the best players in the world. Um, and, he, and he also, um, yeah, he, he he didn't he agree some kind of deal to be to run the the Prada Stadion. If it, well, was it called that then? The the main stadium in Austria. In yeah, Vienna. so that's something that then didn't happen. Because of his death, so a few ah. days before his death, he agreed to become a sporting do- director or a director of the stadium. Um, so one of the, again, a myth associated with him is that a lot of people will say that oh, Sindler knew this cafe owner really well, and he paid him a reasonable price. So even though this had to happen because of Nazi laws, Sindler was actually helping um, Simon Drill. Sorry, Leopold Drill. Um, and he was sort of making the best out of a bad mm-hmm. situation for him. If you're looking at actual figures, it looks like that's not really true, that the money that he was paying was constantly being pushed down, that the valuation was being really taken uh, not very seriously. Yeah. So he didn't really seem to do very much to encourage anything. Um but again, you can spin it in a way that he was supporting this Jewish clientele, uh, which I think is then not really true if he's signing this contract for the Vienna Stadium, because that was definitely part of the Nazi structure. Mm-hmm. And he's really then buying into the new authorities. And while you can say that he was running a cafe maybe independently and doing his own thing, I think by the time that you're willing to become... Mm-hmm. part of that bureaucracy so, that's a bit different it's interesting you say that because often perhaps because people want to they they talk about him living a life in defiance of the nazis and so on but as you say there's so many strands to this and so many ways you can spin it it's quite difficult to sort of pin yeah it down. i mean i think had he not died when he did yeah maybe that would have become clearer that I, you know, I don't think in any sense he was a an ideological nazi i think he just sort of went along with things it's, i mean it's a Easier said than done in the climate as well. Yeah. You, know, you, you can't. You can't. Uh, 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 again, one has to sort of word this correctly, but you know, to kind of use twenty first century, you know, sort of, you know, in the society we are now, to kind of think of it as well. He had the same choices as us. He had this, that, and the other. It's, it's not quite the same. I yeah. will say, so he, from what we can see from documents, he wasn't a party member, mm. as far as we know, mm. but he did vote yes in the referendum. To, so there was this mm-hmm. fake plebiscite where all the Austrians said, yes, we would like to be part of Germany, please. 99.75% voted yes. Wow, so landslide. That's also a complete nonsense to say, <laughs> yeah, he voted yes, but, you know, yeah, exactly. meaningless, absolutely meaningless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then January 1939, Yeah, uh, his... Friend Gustav Hartmann, he's he's supposed to be meeting one morning, doesn't turn up. Hartmann eventually goes to his flat on Anagasa, which is near the opera in Vienna, and knocks on the door, and there's no answer. And he eventually manages to break down the door, and in there he finds Sindelar and Camila Castagnola, who was his girlfriend of a eleven days, a couple, couple of weeks, couple of weeks, yeah, um, lying naked on the bed, and Sindelar is dead. 
Um, Who knows that they're naked? Where does it say that? Oh, uh, maybe that's another one I've, of the myths. <laughs> I've, I've never seen that. Uh, well, I, I have seen it, but I, 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 I don't know for sure. And Castagnola uh, dies on the way to the hospital. She dies the following day. Oh, the following day. But without, without, without regaining, regaining consciousness. consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. you then get the question of why is this 35-year-old athlete suddenly died? So this is really dramatic uh, summary by Alfred Polgar. De good Cinderella followed the city whose child and pride he was to its death. He was so intrinsically entwined with it that he had to die when it died. All the evidence points to suicide, prompted by loyalty to his homeland. And yet all the evidence doesn't really point to suicide, does it? No, very little points to suicide. So it's now generally agreed that it was carbon monoxide poisoning, which can just happen accidentally yeah. well there'd been a neighbor i think had reported a faulty heater yeah a few days earlier i mean whether that's significant or not i don't know but it does suggest that faulty heaters existed in that building yeah and but because you can potentially identify it as suicide or because it looks more romantic and more dramatic and it does remove him in a way from the more problematic times that follow so because he dies before anything but I mean, symbolically, it, it is a symbolically incredibly powerful image that you have this this image of the old Vienna and this, this man who's not about physicality, he's about art. He's about skill. He's about genius. He's not about the jackboot down the street. And on the eve of the Second World War, he dies by gas. You can see the power of that. Yeah. Yeah, and it, but it also means that he doesn't ever get tempted, in a sense, to become part of that. So you don't. Yeah, so see he remains him, pure in that Yeah, sense, you don't yes, see yeah. him becoming a functionary mm-hmm. of the Nazis who might end up doing who knows what because he's actually removed from that part of history early enough, and then he leaves himself open to all of these interpretations that you can put on it. And obviously, in, especially in retrospect, there were a lot of suicides. At that time in Vienna, you know, it starts in sort of 39 with people being unable to cope with the life that they're being forced to lead. So it then becomes quite natural to interpret that as suicide as well. One of perhaps the uh, the lesser credible myths that's usually just a line written or something because it seems quite convenient when they're portraying Cinderella as quite a defiant character is that, that he was perhaps murdered from the Nazis. But Yeah, and that's when you know, it's all... And becomes tied into kind yeah. of was he being provocative in the in the game we've been talking about? Well, that, that, yeah, one myth sort of then leads to another. Yeah. If you kind of go down that path of, yeah, he was taunting them on the football pitch, then it kind of leads you there. But ultimately, it's probably unhelpful. I mean, yeah, the, the, the it should be said that you know the, the police ended their inquiry after two days. They were convinced that there was nothing untoward. Yeah, the, the one thing that is a little bit odd is that the public prosecutor keeps the case open for six months until they're told to, to close it by the Nazi authorities. Now, I don't know if there's anything suspicious in that, but it, it feels weird. I honestly don't know anything about Viennese legislation about... <laughs> <laughs> well, if you don't... post-mortems <laughs> at the time, whether that was just a period of time for which he kept it open. Yeah. You know, again, this is the sort of thing that, in retrospect, if you wanted to look dodgy... Yeah. Sure, you can spin it that way. Maybe that's just officially. The other slightly odd thing is, I mean, you've you've looked for the post mortem and it's missing, right? Yeah, but so I went to the state archive in Vienna or the city archive in Vienna, and 
that particular postmortem isn't there. So you go through the entire box. But there's also, judging by the consecutive numbering on the documents, there are quite a few that are missing. So I wouldn't say that one particular one has been removed. And, you know, I'm also an archivist and things go missing for all kinds of reasons. Like someone's just kept it folded up in a drawer rather than putting it back in the file where it belongs. It's been swept off a table for some reason. There's not necessarily foul play. But it does it does all. create a vacuum in which myths can yeah. can uh whatever things do in a vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> Run wild and free. Yeah. But uh but indeed, but yeah, and going on that sort of train of thought, you know, that he was then if if the 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 death was down to carbon monoxide, you know, he could have a state funeral, which I believe he did. Yeah, so the Nazis then really took advantage of him dying almost and gave him this funeral with all honours. And, you know, the very Nazi mayor of Vienna gave a speech by his graveside. They had Hitler Youth turn up at the grave and he was already described as like a blonde playmaker in his first obituary, just to really rub that in. Not that he had a lot of hair left by that point. Um, and then gradually his grave becomes this sort of pilgrimage site, I think just from a footballing point of view. And the Nazis then put a stop to that because they think it's no longer appropriate to have that sort of emotional outpouring at the graveside of somebody when so many have died through war. Mm. So they had then sort of taken a step back. So the grave then just becomes, it's still quite a nice grave. I've been there. It's got a picture of him. It's got football, you know, all the kind of accoutrements that mm. you might expect. And now he's still one of the very famous players of Austria. I think he's but, still considered the greatest Austrian player. Um, but, you know, you know the, the greatest player of the time when Austrian football was at, yeah. its, at its height. I mean, they, ha- they, haven't, they haven't produced that many con- compared to some of the other countries around them since then, I suppose yeah, I mean, you could yeah. argue, but still. Tony Polster and yeah. Hans Krankel and people like that. But, yeah. you know, it, it's uh, mm-hmm. he, yeah, he, he was the one who had them at a world level. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he's... And, and you know, the... Early death gives people a mystique. Yeah, and he does true. He does so much epitomise Viennese football mm. as well, not just Austrian football as a whole, but he's really a really key figure for Vienna well, of what, what, that time. So what's that, the, the term Ferschlampt? Uh, I mean, uh, no? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your German's not as good as I thought it was, Jonathan. Nice to have you here, Kat, to uh, pull him off of these things. But it, you know, it's been fascinating talking about uh, all this kind of stuff. And, and Cinderella, you know, one of... The, the greatest players of all time, you could argue, and all those myths that have been busted on, on this very podcast, we can put them to bed. But it's definitely worth reading up about him and uh, and all those happenings around that time. So thank you very much, Kat. It's, You're it's, it's been a pleasure. Um, Austria, more, don't beat Germany again for another 40 years. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> uh, well, for more stories. Which is a that. famous game in Cordoba, which I, I hope we'll do at some point. Indeed. Well, yeah, there's a call yeah. to arms for anybody here. <laughs> um, but yes, for more stories like that, go to theblizzard.co.uk. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Much, uh, Kat. Thank you, Jonathan, as always. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next time for another great game. was a Stakhanov production. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.